0: All right, well, uh, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this wonderful uh, Mother's Day Sunday. I want to take a moment to honor all of the amazing moms in the room. Everyone from expectant moms to great grandmoms, uh, thank you so much. Uh, the call of God on your life is such a sacred. Call and we thank God for you because uh, uh, without your mothering nature and, and, and this gift and responsibility, uh, you play such a, a vital role in seeing your children formed and matured and, and growing in their relationship with God. And, and, and we all know that it's, it's no light calling, it's, it's difficult work, sleepless nights, but it's one that's worth it. And, and we see you and we're thankful for you and we honor you. So, can we honor the moms in the room, all of them in person and online? Thank you so much for, for being with us this. The Sunday morning... Uh, well, we're going to continue our series through the book of Galatians. Now, uh, Galatians was one of the first letters written by the church-planting missionary, the Apostle Paul. And in this short book, we, as we've been saying, Paul has a lot to say about the nature of the good news of the kingdom of God, the, the message of Jesus, and the implications that it has in our everyday life. And so, uh, where we find ourselves today is in an interesting place. Uh, the, This morning we are visiting chapter 2 and we're going to look at the ancient scriptures and see how they intersect with our modern life. And this morning we are going to unpack an ancient example of old school family drama. Uh, We're going to examine a conflict between two brothers. And this family conflict is, is very special, it's very unique, because this conflict, produced one of the most important clarifying statements in the history of Christianity about the gospel. And so to unpack this text, we're going to visit two scenes. The first is the dysfunctional table. And the second is the Lord's table. If you're taking notes, the dysfunctional table and the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name and uh, we're so thankful Uh, for this time. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that in your great good design, you have given us mothers uh, to care for us and reflect your good nature. And Lord, we praise you for every single mom in this room. Lord, we praise you for uh, every single desire to be a mom. Lord, I I pray that those uh, would be brought into fruition as your grace uh, comes over us. And Lord, I uh, pray that as we look into this word, uh, that you would help us to focus on it. Uh, It's so easy to come into Sunday thinking this is the end of the week. Let's cross this last thing off the list. But Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us engage the word this morning, knowing that as we look into the word, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So I praise you this morning for the transformation that will take place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Scene one, the dysfunctional table. Uh, we're going to look at verse 11 and kind of make our way down. So verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Uh, now let's cover a little bit of background before we start unpacking how dramatic uh, this verse reads. It's, it's pretty intense. Uh, up until this point of time, uh, the way of Jesus is, is taking off. Uh, we speculate that this is probably about 40 to 50 years after, uh, or 20, about 20 to 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. This small following of disciples is taking off, and this movement called Christianity is growing like a wildfire. Jesus, the God-man, who has came onto the scene and is reversing the effects of sin and is inaugurating a kingdom of God and inviting people to be a part of his family, is revolutionizing every single aspect of of society. But there was one question that was coming up quite frequently, a question that you and I don't really engage because we're way on the other side of this. But early on, as we visit this culture, we noticed one thing. It was a very divided culture. Everything was separated. Jews over here, Gentiles over there, and there was very little intermingling. But Jesus comes onto the scene, and one of the first things that we notice about his ministry is that he goes against most uh, uh, societal norms. Where it was taboo to have conversations with non-Jewish people, Jesus is talking uh, with everyone who doesn't look like him. Where it was taboo and almost uh, considered a sin to sit at a table with a non-Jewish person, which is a Gentile, Jesus was doing it, and it was a normal part of his day-to-day ministry. And so now the question came to mind, and it was this, what is God's plan for the inclusion of non-Jewish groups? Now, the word Gentile means anybody who's not Jewish, so that would be you and I if you're not culturally Jewish. And so what is God's plan for including this group of people into his family? And so the church planting missionary, Paul, heads to Jerusalem, the, the capital city of all religion and politics. And he goes there to visit with the early church leader, Peter and the disciples. And together they clarify this uniting truth that we are saved by faith in Christ, nothing else and nothing more. And all who place their faith in Jesus are welcome into this family, Gentile or Jew. It does not matter. The gospel of Jesus is for everyone. And this was incredible because now the the doors have been swung wide open. The, the, The barriers have been removed. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, regardless of circumstance and background, regardless of ethnic group. The good news of the kingdom of God that you can enter into his family is available for all. And it has nothing to do with who you are your performance, or what you bring to the table. It's simply faith in Jesus. And Paul was standing with Peter, the apostle Peter. You know Peter walking on water who was closely associated with Jesus. And and Peter hears this good news in Jerusalem, but now he's standing in a different city called Antioch, a, a Gentile city, and now he's standing against him in one city Paul and uh, Peter, hand in hand, they agree, they're on board, and in a different city, Paul is opposing Peter. What has just happened? Let's look at verse 12. For certain men came from James, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And because of this interaction, it says that, that Paul opposed Peter face to face. In that first reading, we might think to ourselves, that's a bit excessive over some, some bad table manners. Paul, you got to chill out a little bit. We're just hanging out. But to a first century Jew, it's not surprising that Peter would, would withdraw himself from the Gentiles. Uh, what's perplexing is that Peter would even be around them to begin with. The reason why, as we mentioned earlier, in this ancient Jewish society, everything was separated. The the clean and the unclean, according to the Old Testament law, were separated. The obedient and the sinful were separated. Jews and Gentiles were separated for centuries. Jews were known by their strict laws and their separation from Gentiles. There was no interaction. There was no mingling. And even on a social level men and women were separated. But here's the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus unites. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus removed the barriers. And and Peter is no longer in need of observing these old testimonial, ceremonial practices for separation and cleanliness. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. So why is this a big deal? You see, the church in Antioch was made up of largely Gentile Christians, non-Jewish community, uh, individuals who'd become disciples of Jesus. Peter was Jewish, uh, ethnically Jew, and so when he came to this church, he began to eat with them. He began to fellowship with them. He began to hang out with them. And that may not seem significant, but this was a very big deal for a Jewish man like Peter. You see, Gentiles ate certain foods that were forbidden to the Jews, and even sitting at the table, sharing space, was considered impure. And one thing that's absolutely significant about table fellowship is that it was more than just inviting someone to eat a meal and share some time, it was considered to be a sign of acceptance and approval. Whenever somebody sat at your table, you were accepting and approving of that person. They were part of your family and you were bringing them in and placing your stamp of approval over their lifestyle. And so when Peter is sitting with a community of Gentiles who were thought to be outside of God's grace, what he is essentially saying to the world around him is that these people are accepted and approved by God because of Jesus. And this astonished the religious elite. This perplexed the Jewish community that wanted to preserve their way of life. And yet this was the way of Jesus. And and Jesus, when he would invite tax collectors and sinners and people who did not look like him, he was communicating to the world outside of him that the gospel, the kingdom of God, is available to everyone. Now, it took a very unique event in Peter's life for him to actually internalize this truth. Though we saw Jesus inclusive and welcoming men and women and people from all aspects of society into his life. Peter didn't get it at first. And in fact, it took a very specific moment and we read about that in Acts chapter 10. So I wanna invite you to turn there with me. It says this in Acts chapter 10, verse nine, you can read on the screen as well. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while there, uh, while they were preparing the food, he fell into a trance. Verse 11, he saw this vision. The heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat it's not, I know God was Texan in this moment. He so said, Look at all those animals, let's go, hunting season. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, For I have never eaten anything that is common or clean. In other words, I have observed your Old Testament uh, practices and rituals around food. Nothing that is unclean has ever touched my lips. And that same voice of God said to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. took Peter three times for God to get his attention and the thing was taken up. At once to heaven. So, so what's happening here and why does it matter? Well, God had to send Peter a vision to show him that these old food customs and way of observing the law was finished. That there was no longer any need for him to observe the Old Testament law to gain favor with God because Jesus has fulfilled that law and now he's justified not by his performance, but because of what Christ has done for him. Jesus fulfills the law, the practices, the Old Testament sacrifices that were once in place to produce an internal purity. Jesus has now purified for himself a people by dying for their sins. He saw this great sheet full of animals that were once forbidden for eating in the Old Testament. And he hears a voice, kill and eat. Uh, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And to make the story even more interesting, the the next thing that happens immediately after is that Peter meets a non-Jewish man named Cornelius. And Cornelius receives Christ and is born again. He has that exact same vision and he's called to Peter to testify about it. And this is what happens. Through a series of events, Peter begins to put some things together and he realizes this profound truth that God has been communicating uh, since Jesus' ministry. God does not show favoritism but accepts men and women from every nation who draw near to him in faith. And this is how he says it in Acts 10, 34 through 45. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all you yourselves know what happened through all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil for God was with him this is the gospel lean in church but God they put him to death by hanging him on a tree but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by as God's witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets, all the Old Testament scriptures bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness and new life. Not through your ability to uphold the law, but simply your faith connecting you to Jesus. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, or this is the Jewish community, who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is for everyone, and Peter is thrilled, and he begins to share how all are welcome to the Lord's table. Though God uh, uh, set Israel apart, Israel was never the end game. God was after every single nation, and Peter even begins to go toe-to-toe with the Jewish leaders who are trying to preserve their nationalistic identity, and he begins to advocate for the inclusion of non-Jewish people into all aspects of society. And the very thing that was once frowned upon and culturally unacceptable, eating with Gentiles, he begins to do despite criticism and backlash. And remember, the table represents the place of acceptance, the place of approval. And Peter is saying, you're welcome at this table. And it has nothing to do with what you bring or what you have to offer. Jesus has carved a place for you at this table. And here, we get a picture of a man who is excited and welcoming. But that's not the picture that Paul portrays of him. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Because we get to Galatians chapter 2, and this is what Paul says about our guy Peter. For certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing the very people that he was opposing. And then because of Peter's hypocrisy, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray, another church planting leader. So all of a sudden, if you can imagine with me, Peter's in the cafeteria eating with some new friends, some old teammates walk in from James team and then Peter sees them and he begins to act brand new like he doesn't even know who the Gentiles are. And Peter, the guy who was personally visited by God and reminded three specific times because for some reason he doesn't get it the first and second time, says all are welcome into the family of God despite backgrounds and circumstances and and demographics. And now Peter is intensely rebuilding the wall of hostility that Jesus has died to tear down. See, when Peter was eating with the Gentiles, it was a picture of the unifying work of the gospel. That unity can happen and is accomplished, not because of our uh, collected similarities, but just because we're under the banner of Christ. But something significant happens when Peter removes himself from the table, something that we will miss if we don't pay close attention. When Peter removes himself from the table, it's a picture that Gentiles aren't accepted. It's a picture that Gentiles aren't approved by God. And the reason why this matters is because Peter has just committed a huge blunder. Hear me, by stepping away from the table, Peter is reinforcing the values of the circumcision party that are opposite to the way of Jesus. And this Jewish political party had racial pride tucked beneath the facade of religious observance because all they wanted to do was preserve their nationalistic identity and their way of life. And they wanted no mingling of any other nations involved so that they could preserve their status quo. And when Peter steps away from the table, he's reinforcing the racism that they're swimming in. Why? Because this party was well known for their disdain of individuals who didn't master master national or racial background. You see, when Peter steps away from the table, this is no small ordeal. That's why the church planning missionary Paul says, I oppose them face to face. How dare he make light of the gospel, the unifying work of Jesus that unites every race, every tribe, every tongue under the name of Jesus and creates a whole new family that's independent of our own preferences or circumstances. And what we find happening here is a textbook example of hypocrisy. You see, one author says that hypocrisy is right belief with wrong behavior. Hypocrisy is right belief with wrong behavior. In this moment, Peter believes the right things about God. He He's in faith, and we know that he's going to be repentant later uh, and turn away from his error. But his execution in this moment, his practice, his behavior is completely wrong. He knew the gospel, but his actions were not reflecting the gospel. And the outcome that we see is that a whole community of faith is in shambles. And church, might I add that it's not just enough to know the gospel, but if our execution doesn't practice our knowledge, we run the same risk of creating divisions, maybe not in the community, but in our family. How often is the testimony of one person saying, I don't have faith in Jesus because my aunt, uncle, brother, sister, mom, dad claimed to have faith in Jesus, but their execution was completely off. And if we think that this isn't our story, the scriptures are here to remind us that we can run into the same exact error hypocrisy the the right belief the right knowledge but wrong behavior he knew the gospel but his actions weren't reflecting the gospel there is something interrupting the connection between what his heart believes about god and how he responds to that truth with his actions and what is causing this interruption one word fear for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Before James Cruz showed up, he was eating, fellowshipping, doing the whole thing. But as soon as he saw this people, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Fear? Fear what? Peter, we just saw you just stand up boldly and say, Jesus is for everyone. What's happening here? Well, there's a few reasons why Peter could have been overcome uh, by fear. One uh, speculate that he was afraid of criticism, that after seeing so much backlash by, by Jewish leaders in the Christian community, he was afraid of what James, the half-brother of Jesus, would think about him. Uh, Another speculation is that he was afraid of the violence that the Jewish elite would inflict on him because history is there to show us that people who were committing to the way of Jesus didn't enter into a higher quality of life. They were devastated, destitute, afflicted, broken, sawn in two, thrown in jail, crucified upside down. And Peter begins to think to himself, my identification with the Gentiles might bring about such a disruption to the status quo that that's going to be me. And so maybe overcome by fear, he begins to withdraw and what we see in this moment that's absolutely true is that him being overcome by fear drives him to compromise the faith that he proclaimed fear made him withdraw from his convictions and 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 this fear led into hypocrisy right belief wrong behavior that eventually ended up fracturing this small community and one pattern church That we see over and over and over again is that fear is the prime breeding ground for compromise in the scriptures. Over and over again, we see kings overcome by fear, compromise their call with God, begin to take matters into their own hand. And what happens to them Families are destroyed. Nations fall apart. Over and over again, we see individuals overcome by fear. They take matters into their own hand, and instead of moving towards God, they create greater distance from him. Why? Because what fear does is that it removes God from the throne. And when God's removed from the throne, You'll place yourself in that position and you'll begin to consult yourself and you'll begin to take charge and then you'll turn to yourself for solutions to experience a sense of stability or freedom from whatever fear is introducing into your life. And, and we've seen this over and over again again. Fear that we're not going to make ends meet. And so instead of waiting on God, we begin to compromise with our finances or or, or do things that we know are out of God's will for our life. Why? So we can create a sense of stability. Fear that our kids are going to not turn out the most optimal versions of what we want them to be. So we begin to be overbearing. And instead of creating connection, we create distance. Distance fear that I'm going to lose this person that I'm giving my heart over to. So you begin to do things that you never thought you would do just so they won't let go. And now instead of connection, there's distance. Why? Because you're sitting on the throne envisioning what life should look like and you're calling the shots and taking yourself there. And in this moment, out of fear of what may come about his life, Peter doesn't consult God. He consults himself. And what does he do? He steps away from the table. Instead of fearing God, he was fearing man. And when we talk about fearing God, hear me, church, we're not talking about being scared of God. Uh, the, the scripture doesn't give us provision to be scared of God. He's, he's loving and welcoming, and he's the prince of peace and a good father, a mighty warrior, but gentle and lowly and approachable. Rather, when, when the scriptures talk about fearing God, I love this definition, it means having such a reverence for him that it has great impact on the way we live our lives. Having such a high view and high reverence of who God is, what he's done, and what he's capable of, that when you think about him, it begins to dictate the way you live your life. Uh, when I was uh, eighth grade age, whatever that is, I, I got to visit the Grand Canyon, and uh Uh, the experience was so emotional. If you visited the Grand Canyon, I found out that I'm not the only one who cried when I stared at it. You did too if you visited it because it's so overwhelming and beautiful and you stand at the edge and you're immediately overcome with fear, not because that thing is scary, but because you realize if you fall, you might not be able to make it. And so every step of the experience is taken with that in mind that there's this huge gaping hole in the earth that you could fall into and there's nothing anybody else can do about it. And so out of reverence, out of respect for this creation, you're aware of how you're behaving and what you're doing around it. The same thing is said about God having such a high elevated view of who God is, what he's done and what he's capable of that he begins to influence the way we step The way we walk, the way we conduct ourselves. Why? Because we're living, uh, postured before the king out of reverence for him. And I love this popular saying, the fear of God is the one fear that removes all others. The fear of God is the one fear that removes all others. But Peter forgot that. Uh, Peter, in this moment of controversy, dysfunction sets in, and instead of fearing God, he begins to fear the outside world around him that God created. And in this moment of epic failure, conflict gives way to one of the most profound truths of the gospel, seen to the Lord's table. Look at verse 16 with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you're writing down notes, if you like to underline your Bible, underline justified by faith. Why? Because that's the very first time this epic statement about the gospel appears in Paul's writings, and it completely revolutionized and changed the world. Why? Because Peter is adding language to the way this good news works, that your right standing before God has nothing to do with what others think about you. Your right standing with God has nothing to do with your moral performance and your ability to keep the law and show yourself to be well-studied, approved Jewish boy or girl. Your right standing with God has nothing to do with your ethnic background and has everything to do with Jesus who justified you on his behalf. That the king of kings and the Lord of lords would enter into his creation and live for you and die for your sins. So no longer your sins testify your worth or your value or your status before God. Rather, his resurrection and his victory tells the story of your life. Justified by faith. And Paul goes in. He opposes Peter, but he doesn't leave him there like some of us would. Like I'm moving on with this guy. He says, Peter, let me remind you of something. That access into God's family has nothing to do with being Jewish or Gentile and has everything to do with faith in Jesus. Let me remind you something, Peter. It has nothing to do with how good you are at eating like a Gentile or behaving like a Jew. It has everything to do with Jesus and him living for you, dying for you, rising from the dead and bringing you into his family. And now the Lord's table takes on profound imagery. You see, now the Lord's table represents the fellowship that we can have with God and with others despite our differences. Now the Lord's table means that I'm accepted and that I'm in the family of God. Why? Because Jesus brought me to the table, took out the chair, and said, sit down, you belong here. And how does this happen? It's not because I RSVP'd and found my way to where he was having dinner. It's because my faith connected me to him and he brought me into this family. It says, Justified by faith in christ by committing my life to him putting my trust in him not my effort not my works simply faith and church this is really good news because this means that every single barrier of status every single barrier of religion gender and nationalism is no longer a prerequisite to be extended an invitation to Jesus' table and this is what makes discipleship to Jesus so beautiful and so unique is that when Jesus extends the invitation to his followers, uh, when he extends this invitation to be his disciple, it's not to a select few, it's to everyone. Jesus comes and breaks through these barriers and calls to himself those who in the eyes of the religious elite of Jesus' time did not even consider worthy or have the necessary qualification for fellowship with him. Now, why does this matter and what does this mean for you and I? The tendency that you and I have as Christians following Jesus in this day and age that we live in, if we're honest with ourselves is we're aware that Jesus' table is available for us, but we feel like we gotta do something before we go take a seat at it. And what ends up happening is this idea of let me clean myself up or or, or, or let me uh, make myself worthy and presentable. That way I can come fellowship with the king. And it's a lie of the enemy that keeps us from enjoying the grace that God's made available for us. And then on the other side of that, we can just become so apathetic. And we can say, well, Jesus has prepared a table for me and I know he sits at it and and we know the scriptures and and, and we know the words. And yet when we take a seat at Jesus' table, we don't even take into consideration the king is there. And we can live such apathetic, normal lives like, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but we can't even see where he is at the table. And Jesus the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords, out of his great love for us, uh, lived and died for us, not so that we can just be bystanders or that we can be, you know, mediocre guests who enjoy a meal and his presence, but that we can be eternally united to him and enjoy his presence forever. Why does this matter and what does this mean for you and I? You see, in this moment, We don't just see an image of bad table manners and Peter's epic blunder and Paul's attempt to correct the blunder. What we see in this moment is a conflict between two brothers. And it's a reality that we are all aware with, that family can be difficult. And that pursuing unity and that pursuing God's vision for family can be hard. And if Peter, the rock on which Christ's church is built, can get it wrong, we will too. And yet that will never be the exit marker for saying, hey, I'm done with this faith. Let me go find something else to do. Uh, I'm messing up over and over again. Let me go find a new community. Rather... Pursuing God's vision for family is hard. You'll get it wrong. But the vision of family that we're committed to pursuing is one of being committed to one another despite the blunders and despite the errors. You see, in this moment, Paul doesn't hold it over against Peter's head any longer rather Peter is reconciled. He is repentant. They are restored and united. And we get this amazing picture of what life in the family of God is like. Though we may have differences and though there may be blunders and we might trespass against one another, reconciliation is available because Jesus has died for us to be reconciled. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that when you do commit an epic blunder, when you do feel like you've removed yourself from the table and there's no way of getting back to Jesus, God does not disown his children. He he will discipline out of love, but he won't disown those who are found in Christ. The good news of the kingdom of God is that the father brings us home. Jesus sets the table and the Holy Spirit keeps us there. And why does this matter? Well, if we're going to be a church that's committed to the way of Jesus, we have to remember the table is dysfunctional. And when you experience a measure of dysfunction, when you experience maybe something that rubbed rubbed you the wrong way at a lunch, in a meet and greet, at a community group, that isn't our excuse to flee and exit. That's our moment to dig in and pursue unity, pursue God's vision of commitment to one another despite our differences and despite our blunders. We will get it wrong. The table will be dysfunctional, but it will never be off limits. We will never abandon our pursuit of unity, and this means that our highest priority is fearing God and remaining faithful to the gospel even if it means awkward confrontation. Jesus has paid a high price for us to be unified and the world around us will know the power of our gospel as we pursue one another relationally. Despite our differences and despite our blunders and despite our errors, can we be the church that elevates priority and unity with Jesus above all of our individual preferences? My prayer is that God would form that community here. And my prayer is I'm going to be here as long as possible. I'm I'm praying for 60 years because that sounds about right. And that would be cool if I was 90 up here, that the world would see around us the power of our gospel because of our diversity and our commitment to unity. Let's close in prayer.